Hello, this is Mike Van Meter. Welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. I want to thank you for joining me, and you can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And so today we are going to be talking about uh, one of my old police departments, um, or I should say the police department that I was in before I became an FBI agent, and that's the Metropolitan Police Department, and what it was like and how it affected our guest, Deborah Wolf. And she has a, a book out called Center Mass, Center Mass, and she's going to talk to us about that and her experiences Back in the days in the D.C. Police Department, back when it was the Wild West, it was kind of like that even when I was there in the 90s. But uh, Deborah was one of the first women to really be engaged in uh, really the work that was was done in, in D.C. And, um, you know, I, I tell you, there's probably not a more toxic profession on your, your body, mind, and soul than than police work. And uh, But Deborah's going to talk to us about that and how it affected her. So, Deborah, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mike. I just want to, uh, I, I uh, was on the D.C. Police Department. I came on in 1973 when the court uh, in affirmative actions, they made them take women, and they were not very happy about it. Um, so I was young, dumb, and thin. I was 22 years old. And one thing that I learned straight off is if I could drink like the boys, I was much more readily accepted. And so drink I did. And I worked in an area of D.C., which was 14th Street Northwest, which had all the ladies of the night. It was certainly an experience because I grew up, was born and raised in Bethesda, Maryland, in a white bread suburban house. And um, I had never seen anything like it in my life. And so I was with, uh, I had a very violent career. Like Mike said, my book is called Center of Mass. Um, the police district that I worked with was right in the heart of D.C., and uh, as many of you may know, center of mass is also a shooting term, a firearms term. When you're, when you unfortunately have to shoot out on the street, you're you're going for center of mass, which is the, uh, you know, the middle of your body. And uh, so that's why I uh, named my book that. But anyway, my sobriety date is October 26, 1986, and I haven't found it necessary to take a drink since then. Uh, I married an alcoholic, as many of us do. His name was Frank. He was also a police officer. And I didn't have to do many of the things that I hear about in recovery, about all the games that people play, like hiding the bottles. I've heard people say that they take their, uh, on recycling day, they stick their bottles in their neighbor's recycling uh, cans so that, the, <clears throat> so that nobody notices. I didn't play any of those games because I was, quote, lucky to be married to an alcoholic unquote. So um, the day I put down the drink is the day he stopped drinking too. And Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. We ultimately divorced, but um, I don't believe he ever picked up another drink. And so that's a gift. We have a son. Today's his 38th birthday. He's a motorcycle officer in D.C. He was three when I came in this program. Like I said, he's 38 today. If I never take another drink, He'll never know me as that drunken mother. Um, in 1986, the summer of 86, I, he got in the way of my drinking, so I basically gave him away. I chose drinking over my son. I hate 
sharing that, but that's a part of my story. You know, drinking will take us down. We all have different events, but it's really basically all the same. You know, drinking was fun for a while, and then it wasn't fun. And uh, I'm not going back to that way of life. You know, with COVID, everything has changed in recovery. Um, but I've discovered the Zoom meetings, and the Zoom meetings are great. I'm going to meetings, Zoom meetings all over the country. I found a great women's meeting in Anchorage, Alaska. And one day, I'm, I hope to go out there and meet those ladies face-to-face. I, uh, I sponsor a lady uh, that I started sponsoring in, uh, during COVID. We've never met face-to-face. One day we will. She lives in Southern Virginia. So it's, uh, it's been interesting. It's been an interesting ride. I've always stayed active in recovery. Um, I don't think any of us wakes up and says, gee, I want to be an alcoholic. I'd never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, nobody in my family is an addict or alcoholic, which is surprising because it is genetic. Uh, I went to rehab in in downtown D.C. I did tw- the, the, the 28 days, got out, and I just thought life is over. What a, what a horrible life it's going to be. But little did I know. The old timers would tell me, you know, don't stop five minutes before the miracle happens and all those corny phrases. But you know what? They were absolutely right. Today I have credibility. I have two grandkids. I live down near my son in southern Virginia, well, middle central Virginia. And uh, they don't spend one second worrying about Grammy being drunk. They don't come up to me and smell my breath and go, oh, she's, you know, she's done it again. You know, so I'm not giving that up and I don't have to. I think we all basically start out on a level playing field and we can all get this program. You know, the the day for excuses is over. We can all find an excuse, right, Mike? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We can always have an excuse, you know, if only you, you know, usually it's over relationships, but um, not always. And, uh. I like the old corny saying, if you want something, you'll find a way. If you don't if you don't want it, you'll find an excuse. And that's absolutely true. You know, so the benefits of this program for anybody that's thinking about it, I guarantee your life will get better. If we keep doing, and I say we, if we keep drinking, I guarantee our lives will get worse. There's no doubt about it. So... I just like to give hope to people. You know, I say I have long-term sobriety today. I have over 34 years sobriety. If things didn't get better, why would I keep going to AA? You know, it absolutely positively works. People, some people talk about, oh, all they do is talk about God. All they do is talk. That's, that's the excuse mode. When I came in these rooms, the, I went basically to women's meetings, but they seem pretty happy, and it's not that drunken, ha-ha happy. They seem happy, and I wanted that because I hadn't been happy in a long time. And uh, they kept saying, well, we'll see you tomorrow at such and such a meeting. And then the next day I go to a meeting, they go, well, we'll see you next day at another meeting. You know, I was just this dumb, I don't know. I just kept coming back. You know, they talk about keep coming back. It works if you work it. And that's what I did. I got involved. I did service work. I made coffee. I did whatever they told me to do. And here I was, this big, badass cop, you know, like, uh, they told me to stand on my head in a corner so I didn't have to feel that way anymore. I would have done it. 
<laughs> I mean, it, yeah. it is, it's true. It's talk about surrender and willingness. Yeah. You know? Well, it's, you know, uh, what's interesting, it. Deborah, you, you said that um, if people make excuses about not, not being able to get the program. And I, and I actually recently was talking to a police officer that, that desperately needs to be in the program. And this individual said to me, um, I, I can't be helped. I'm one of those people that, that can't be reached. What do, you, what do you say to that? What do you say to that? Well, that's an excuse. And, you know, another thing people talk about how they're too busy. I'm too busy to go to meetings. I'm too busy. I don't think any one of us ever woke up in the morning and said, I'm too busy to drink. And, and as silly as that sounds, it's true. I mean, we throw everything away, you know, kids, family, dog, whatever, to get that next drink, you know. So if you want it, you go for it. I'm, I'm more than willing to go out on a limb for anybody that wants it, but I'm not going to drag you across the finish line. Nobody did for me. A lot of times people will ask me to be their sponsor because they want somebody to kick their ass because they think, you know, oh, she was this big bad cop in D.C. I'm not kicking anybody's ass, Mike. If you want it, I'll be there. But if you, you know, why would I kick your ass? If you want to do what I do, if you want what we had, you do what we do, you know? Yeah, that, that's funny. And I actually run into that with people that I sponsor as well. And I'm not being critical because um, those in that listen to this program that know my story, my, my sobriety d- did not come easy. In fact, it was about a 10 year process before mm-hmm. I, I finally put together, you know, 48 hours of uh, not drinking. So I'm not being critical, but I will tell you that when I first got to the, when I first started putting together some time, it, it was not, there was, there was not anybody standing over my shoulder going, okay, now son, go to that meeting over there and don't drink. And we're watching you like a hawk. It didn't work that way until I took complete accountability and complete responsibility for my actions and, and started actually putting into practice what I was being told. Some of the things that you're talking about, I didn't put any time together because the bottom line is um, if you don't want to get well, if you don't want to get well, there's not a damn thing I can do for you. Now, if you want to get well, I have a lot of tools and resources and, and, and advice and direction I can give you. And I can, well, more, most importantly, exp- express to you what I did to get well. But you got to do the work, right? You've got to do the work. Yeah, it's kind of like a diet, you know. <laughs> you want to lose weight, you got to lose weight. And that's, you know, and I am eating too much over COVID, but whatever. You know, nobody can make you do it. And we, we, when I was in the middle of my disease, if then somebody said, well, I think you're drinking too much. I mean, how many of us would go, oh, thank you. I think you have a point. I think I'll look up AA or whatever. <laughs> thank you, really, Kitchen. I didn't know that. I never knew I was drinking too much. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, who says that? You have to be ready. I know there's, you know, some people, they talk about the bot. You have to hit bottom. And I know there's different, you know, opinions about that. I just know, I guess I hit my bottom. I don't know. I never have ever questioned it. I never thought, I'll just share this. Even though I've been mar- I'm married, oh Lord, even though I've been sober a really long time, if I think about drinking today, I still do not want a drink. I want bottles with an S on the end. So some people will say, I'm just as sick as I was when I came in. I'm not as sick as I was when I came in. But I'm as alcoholic as I was when I came in. Good point. And that's why I still set, stay in recovery. Also, if the of us old timers, if we stop going to meetings, we gotta we gotta, you know, carry on. We gotta, you know we have an obligation to pass on the knowledge that was so freely given to us. And you know, because I have a lot of information. I may not be the smartest, you know, smartest person in the world, but I have a lot of information and 
And so I pass that on the, the best I can to other people. And a lot of experience, yeah. You know, if, if this program is relatively new and, you know, basically, it's only, you know, about 80-some years old. Um, and when I came in, I, I had been involved in a, when I was still in the police department, I was involved in a fatal shooting and in 1986. And I had a grand jury pending, you know, hanging over my head in D.C. Now, that's so-called routine because it was a fatality. But in the middle of that, waiting for the grand jury, I, I decided to get sober. And I got out of rehab after 28 days. I still had a grand jury hanging over my head. And, and I thought, I'm a dumb alcoholic. I thought if I drank, I'd get in trouble. Now, I don't know who I was going to get. And I'm not talking about the police department, but I just thought the people in AA would be mad at me. So I did, that was one reason I didn't drink, because I didn't want them to be mad at me. You know, it worked temporarily, but the grand jury took 54 weeks to meet over a year. And I just kept going to meetings, you know, meetings day, daily. I was on administrative leave with pay and I had to be, this is before cell phones, and I had to be at home from 8 to 4.30 in the event they, the court called me and I had to go downtown and testify. So it was a really, really, it was a tough time. It was a very, very difficult time. And then Dumbbell Me decided to get sober at that time. You know, we get, we get sober when we're ready. That was when I look back, I think, why in the world did you pick that time to get sober when you had that thing hanging over your head? But I just did. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's just some, you know, one event in my story. But I didn't drink over it. You know, people drink over, like, the death of a family. I've suffered, you know, we've all suffered deaths. Both my parents have died in sobriety. And, uh, but what's a drink going to accomplish? Nothing. 30 seconds of euphoria and then a huge oh shit moment, you know? Yeah. You know, I can't think of any, and I've been to many, many, many meetings. I've never seen anybody come in and share a really, you know, a horrendous problem. And everybody goes, well, that's okay. You can drink over that. That's fine. You know, (laughs) (laughs) it's okay. You get a free pass on that. And, you know, and that's very helpful to me because I believe now, like I said, my son is a motor officer in D.C. And I used to think if something happened to him in the line of duty, well, of course I would drink. Anybody would drink. I don't think that anymore at all. I just don't, you know, I can't think of any situation that would justify drinking. Nothing, nada. And I don't need the calories. But I will say also, you know, being the good alcoholic that I am, I'll see something on TV, a new product. You know, I saw something at the Super Bowl, and I won't name it, but it's an alcohol, something new on the market. And I'm thinking, gosh, I'd really like to try that. I just want to try it one time. And then I think, no, you're not trying that, no. You know, or why didn't that come on the market when I was still drinking? And it just shows me I'm still an alcoholic. I have to remember that, you know, there is no more social drinking, whatever that means. What does that mean? One bottle instead of three, you know? <laughs> well, that, that never happened anyway. I mean, as long as, as long as it was there, I was always there. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And I'm very fortunate. My son does not drink at all. And uh, because being that his dad was an alcoholic, the odds are very high that he would be an alcoholic too, you know, the father and son thing. And, but he doesn't drink at all. And one time I asked him being the good alcoholic mother, I said, well, why don't you drink? And then I thought, why are you asking him this? And he said, well, I don't want to lose control of my faculties. And I said, well, that's the whole idea. And then I thought, you know what? Shut up. This is not a conversation to have with your son. So, 
you know, that's fine with me. I don't, I don't keep it in the house in case somebody comes over. Um, I don't romanticize drinking. I don't tease the disease, as they say in, in AA. I don't drink the non so-called non-alcoholic beer, which does have a little bit of alcohol in it. I just don't pretend. I don't do it because next thing I know, it's like, well, you could have one, you know, and then one becomes two and then you're off to the races again. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, you mentioned you mentioned having the the genetic predisposition yourself, and you know clearly your son does as well. And and maybe you know who knows maybe that's that's why another reason why he doesn't drink because even though he didn't see you drink, and I'm assuming your ex husband drink, but he's aware maybe he's aware that he has that high genetic predisposition. I know that that's that's how my kids are. They're they're they are you know I never hid this from them. You know they've they've mm-hmm. known it, but they were they were very young when when I stopped, but. Uh, but they're aware of it, you know. They're aware of it, and and we we've taught them. My wife and I both have. But you mentioned the genetic predisposition on your part. Talk to us a little bit about that. What what did you mean by that? Well, I just know it runs rampant through families. And when I went through rehab, they actually had somebody do the family tree. I think I was still toxic when we were talking about it. But I I really am one of the few. Oh, I'm so unique. But I mean, there are very few people in my family, my bloodline that have this disease and that's very unusual because you know it runs rampant through families and I do think about my son about him making that decision not to drink because of his father's history but I I don't know I don't spend much time thinking about it I don't really think that's the reason because we know we all know so many people who have alcoholic fathers or parents who say I will never be like them and next thing you know, they're exactly like them. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't really know. I'm just happy that he doesn't drink. That's that's fine with me. Now, did you drink um, growing up or did this start after you got into the department? It started when I was in college, just like a lot of people. As we know, you know, a lot of people go crazy in college drinking and then they kind of grow up after they graduate. And uh, But I didn't, I didn't grow up. I think that the police department, and I'm not blaming anybody for anything, but it did add to it because I so badly wanted to be accepted. It was really, a, they, they so did not want women. It, it, was, it was bad. As a matter of fact, some of the wives of these male officers picketed headquarters downtown. That's how badly they did not want us working with their husbands. Um, so I quickly uh, found the drinking with the, the boys, so to speak was kind of an icebreaker. So that kind of contributed. Would I become an alcoholic without any of that? I don't know. I have no idea. I used to think about that. I don't think about it anymore. This program has changed my life so much for the better that I, I don't care about that. People would say, I'm a grateful alcoholic. And I'd say, get the net for that person. They're certifiably insane. I don't really say I'm glad to be an alcoholic. I just know my life has gotten so much better in recovery. And why would I want to give that up? Yeah. I don't. You know, and I, I'm the same way. My, my life has gotten a thousand percent better. Um, I would say this. There, there's certain aspects of my life because, you know, like like you just mentioned, you don't want to say that you're, you're glad that you're an alcoholic. But there are, you know, like all things in life. I think one of the things that you learn in recovery is you learn to appreciate things and you learn – that there's an upside, even in negative things, like in COVID, there there's negative things that have happened in, in COVID, certainly, but there's some positive things, like you you mentioned going to meetings that uh, you know around the country that you probably you probably wouldn't have gone to if it hadn't been 
that you were forced to Zoom and forced to change how you do meetings. I know I'm going to meetings over in the United Kingdom right now, which mm-hmm. I, it would not have happened if it hadn't been for COVID because I just wasn't online, you know, the way right. that, uh, this podcast actually would not have happened had it not been for, for COVID. Um, but I know that there's there's things even in my, you know, my personal, my, my spiritual development. I know me and I know that uh, my my relationship with my higher power is at a point now that I don't think would have ever happened had it not been for alcoholism and really being forced to explore that side of my life a little bit more. So there are things about it, and I think that that's something in recovery you have to look at is, you know, this is this is an opportunity to change not just your alcohol, not just drinking, but really just kind of everything, kind of reset your life and your perspective right. on life. You know what I mean? Right, right. And another, one more that I think is very important is that it's very explicit. These are but suggestions. Nobody's telling you what to do. Now, we suggest highly you probably want to stop drinking or drugging, whatever. But that even is a suggestion. And for alcoholics, we don't like to be told what to do necessarily. Oh. I think that really, I that was very helpful to me because they emphasized these are but suggestions. You don't have to believe in a higher power. You don't have to believe in anything. I know many atheists. So we're not shoving anything down your throat. And I, and I really like that. I also like particularly, you know, in the political climate out there, we don't, we, we don't talk about outside issues no. at all. Because way back in the day with the Washingtonian Society before AA, they had like Republican alcoholics and Democrats. And it, it, the whole thing imploded. It doesn't work. And we're very, very explicit. We do not get into outside issues. And that really, and that makes it, we feel safer, you know, so, you know, at that work, that's a huge thing. So there's not, they are suggestions and we're not shoving anything down your throat. Yeah. You know, and that, that's funny because that you mentioned that I, one of the, one of the things when I came into AA and by the way, we're not, neither one of us are plugging AA per se or any other program. Right. I mean, you know, any no. there's a lot of programs out there. And if and if if you're listening to this and you've got a program that's working for you, if, if it's working for you, God bless you and continue on. Absolutely. This just happens to be, you know, the program that, that we're involved in. And um and I know that uh when I came into AA, I would hear it's amazing how I would hear so many people have so many different opinions about it. And then I would go to the meeting and I'd be like, so that's not what I'm seeing. I'm not experiencing what I heard about this. And some of it was, you know, very people that are very religious don't think that AA is religious enough. Um, um, people that aren't religious think that it's too religious. And then there's others where, you know, I didn't want to go in there and listen to this guy's opinion or have this rammed down my throat. And when I went in, just like you were saying, Deborah, um, I, I didn't hear any politics. In fact, that's that's really forbidden to talk about those outside issues, oh, like you mentioned. Yeah. And uh, I have not had anyone force upon me or really pressure me to believe anything other than uh, the, the one thing that they do say is that you, you <laughs> it's highly suggested that you are not your own higher power. Let's put it that way, because you, you, you in your opinion, what, what do they say? Your best thinking got, right. you, got you here. <laughs> your best thinking got you here. So let's try another way of thinking. You know, they, they do talk about that, but then it's not it's not beaten into your head that you have to believe anything in particular other than it's something greater than yourself. And uh, and that is true. It is my my 
if my plan was working, well, then why was I sitting there in a meeting? <laughs> you know. Oh, exactly. My plan wasn't exactly. working so well. <laughs> right. And I feel the power of the group, and that can be defined any way you want. I mean, having tried for years to stop drinking on my own, and then, you know, put the drink down, and over 34 years later, I haven't had a drink. That, that wasn't me. And I don't define it. I don't know what it is. I don't know. I just know it works. And people can define it any way they want, or they can define it, and doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be defined if you don't want to. Right. So now, you know. um, being a police officer, and, and particularly being uh, in in that field during that time, and, and I can relate to that because my, my wife and I were both uh, Navy officers, and we became Navy officers around the same time you were in the department in the mid-'80s. And I know my wife went through a lot of, uh, what you went through and that, you know, not a lot of men were in, in the field that, that she was in, in those pressures. But um, I, having also been a police officer, I just know how talk, particularly a city police officer like you were, very toxic environment. And I'm not talking about men not wanting women in there. I mean, just working the streets, just doing the job. Very, very tough on, on you mentally, physically, spiritually, all those kinds of things. How much of that do you think contributed to uh, the increase of your, your drinking, just the stress of that particular, and the danger of that particular job? Well, my career was particularly violent, and people have a, you know, have all kinds of uh, theories about why it was. It, about 99%, 98% of police officers never fired their gun in their entire career. And, you know, people think, well, yeah, of course they do. They, I, I saw a lethal weapon, and I saw this, and I saw that. Well, they, they're not going to have a movie about you doing five hours of paperwork on an arrest, you know. <laughs> and, I mean, I yeah, have yet to ever see a building blow up or a car blow up or all that, you know, whatever. That's movies. That's, but my, my career was so – I was involved in two fatal shootings. I was – there were dogs. There was a shooting in the cell block. My partner was shot by my sergeant. And my book is called Center of Mass on Amazon. But it's all true. It just was a very, very violent career. And, and that did, that probably did contribute to it. Um, and also, there were no resources. Post-traumatic stress disorder was not a recognized. That was not in the alphabet. Those letters were not in the alphabet back in the day. That was not a diagnosis. So back then, the diagnosis was, it was to suck it up, shut up, and um, people used to congratulate me and welcome me to the club, and I would say, what club? What are you talking about? And they said, well, you know, you were involved in a fatal shooting, now you're in the club. Well, I didn't want to be in the club, and I still don't want to be in the club, but, um, so there were no resources. There was nothing, and um, so I also get asked, you know, aren't you bitter because, but how can you be bitter, and, you know, because it wasn't there? People did the best they could. They didn't know. So now the resources are there now. When there's a shooting, they have counselors. They have all kinds of things that are offered. You know, with back then, they had a full bar at the homicide division to loosen you up, you know, relax you. Well, I, don't, I think that bar is long gone. You know, yeah, and there was the FOP. I remember the FOP, too. I don't know if that's still there, but um, that was a big drinking spot. Well, that was my second home, yeah. So, yeah, that's still there. But and no, I don't drink there anymore. But yeah, I mean, it's like a lot of professions. You know, people will say, uh, "Oh, I work at such and such job." Oh, that's a big drinking job. I don't know what job is not a drinking job. You know, so and also, yes, it was very, very violent, very stressful. Um, 
it was just crazy. It was, looking back now, I just can't believe how crazy and insane it was, particularly, like I said, the 14th Street Corridor, which had, it was solid gridlock with prostitutes and traffic, and it was nuts. And I was an undercover hoe back in the day that it's like, you know, so I look back and sometimes I think, I just can't believe it, really. So it was interesting to say the least. So I wrote a book to document it for no other reason. Yeah, and the I, I think a lot of police officers can relate. Well, I know they can because I I talk to. That's one of the things I do is I I talk with uh, a lot of police, not just police officers, but EMTs, firefighters, dispatchers, corrections officers, and you know those that are out in these jobs and they think that you know people can't understand what they're going through well there are people like us that have gone through this and they they often feel like they're alone particularly these days you know uh, law enforcement in general is just is under such an attack and the fact is that you know there are folks that have gone through what you've gone through and and i highly recommend that you read deborah's book um you know center of mass just check that out on amazon because she will chronicle that and i will tell you having and i'm, I'm saying this because i was in the same department that you were in it was crazy uh you know i think five years maybe three years in that department the metropolitan police department where you were is more like 15 years somewhere somewhere else <laughs> I, I just it was a lot of experience packed into a short very short amount of time you know when i was there and um and i actually think it was probably worse when when you were there but uh very very tough situation so deborah for those that are listening to us right now and, and I'm assuming that if you're listening to this program, there's a re- probably a reason why you're listening to this program, either the, your, yourself or someone you love, uh, someone close to you in your life, is struggling with an issue. What would, just today, what would be your basic suggestion? What would be your pearls of wisdom to anybody listening right now? My pearls of wisdom, and I, and I know that, you know, you and I, Mike, we talk about AA, and I'm glad you said that there are other programs out there. So whatever works, I only talk about AA because that's the program that I go to. But I would say we have open meetings and closed meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous, and an open meeting is really for anybody that might want to investigate, um, you know, recovery. A closed meeting are people that definitively think they have a problem and want to go to a close, you know, that type of thing. But my suggestion would be look up an open meeting and just check it out. Keep an open mind. Those two words are so important. Keep an open mind. And, you know, people will be welcoming. And and if you don't like that meeting or whatever, you can always go to another meeting just because I promise you it will get better. It just, it just will. And if you keep it, you know, if you keep the open mind and if I can give you any, any little bit of hope, then I hope that, that I can because my kid, my kids, my grandkids, you know, I have a relationship and I know a lot of older people, they can't babysit their grandkids or their kids because they're untrustworthy. I have not knocked over a Christmas tree in probably 35 years. And if I knock over one now, I'll be sober when I do. So. <laughs> You know, just check out an open meeting or two and keep an open mind. That's that's all I can say. And you raise a good point, too, because I, I hear this from people where they go to a meeting and they think, oh, my gosh, that was crazy. Or, the, you know, something was said that they didn't like and or they didn't like the people, whatever. And 
and then they just don't go back again. And I think it's important to understand, like in the D.C. area, just where you and I live, I, I think there's maybe 300 different meetings, I think, per day. Per day. Oh, per day, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, per day. And um, if you don't like one, just go to another one. And what happens is you, you got to, because I did early recovery my first year, I went, sometimes I was going to three meetings a day. I was going to at least one a day, but sometimes three a day. And, and I won't say that I liked all of them because I didn't. Um, but what but what I did do is I would just go to a different one, and eventually, eventually you kind of figure out like, okay, I mesh with this group, you know, I like this. There's just something about it. And today, you know, I have like my routine, and I'm sure Deborah, you have your routine of meetings that you go to. But th- but I developed that. I mean, it was it was kind of hit or miss, you know. But I but I just kept finding different meetings, and it was like, okay, well, these are my people right here, and kept going. So that's the important. Don't don't judge everything based on one experience. Yeah. Go to several meetings and, and go a few minutes beforehand. I know it's the scariest thing you ever do. It was scary for me, too. You know, like, oh, my God, what have I got myself into? But go a few minutes beforehand. I guarantee you'll be, you know, greeted warmly and, you know, just you, but give it a try. Go to several. And then. And then go from there. Anyway. Yeah, take yeah. it from there. Well, uh, tell us a, a little bit more about your book. When did you write this? I wrote the book about four years ago um, because I'm not getting any younger. And uh, once I started writing, the, the hardest thing was to just start. But once I started, it, was, it wasn't hard. Um, it's a pretty quick read. So it's a very interesting story, not just because it's mine, but it's pretty interesting. And uh, it's not a wham wham for me story. I'm a victim. That's not what I intend. I just want this is what I, happened to me, and I got through it. I persevered. And today... Things are good. Uh, they, just, they just are. And my mantra is, I don't drink no matter what. That's it. I don't drink. So. And I understand you're working on a video, or not a video, but an, an audio version of this book. Yeah, I'm recording. I'm doing an audio book. Yeah, right right now. And any idea when that will be completed and available? Um, probably in the next couple months. I'm, re- I'm about two-thirds of the way through, so... And then I got to put it together, but that'll be on, on Amazon too. Oh, that's fantastic! That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so, give us the name of the book again, and how uh, our listeners can get hold of a copy of that. Uh, the name of the book is Center of Mass, and right now it's on it's on Amazon. And Deborah R. Wolf. It's a blue cover with my badge on it, kind of tilted over because that was the story of my life, tilted over. Um, <laughs> you know. So it's an easy read. It's, it's like I said. I think it's a pretty interesting story. So, yeah, I, I I know it is, and and I had the the fortunate the fortune to meet you at a meeting via Zoom. Again, that's another upside yeah. to COVID, right? Is I don't know that mm-hmm. you and I would have actually the meeting that you and I attend where I met you was started as a direct result of COVID. And yeah. I went to that, and I was I, I will tell you right now, I was not a big online meeting guy. Uh, in fact, I was kind of anti-online meeting guy prior to COVID. I'm, I'm a big face-to-face person, and uh, but I, you know, I, I didn't think any any of us thought a year later we'd still be locked up in our homes. And so I was kind of forced into the meeting, and and I'm glad I did because I got to meet you know people like you and others, the, the great people. You meet some great people in in meetings. Yeah. you do. You meet a lot of great people. Um, yeah, that's a good point. The Zoom meetings, um, I would recommend, and yes, it is, it's not real easy to get used to them, but once I got used to them, uh, 
they're great. And also, if you're shy, you don't have to show your face. You can be no. anonymous during the meeting. And, you know, once again, nobody's forcing you to, you know, come out of the closet, so to speak. But I check out the Zoom meetings. I would say that same as the in-person. Just give it a try. We got nothing to lose. I love the thing. There's no, there's no sign on the wall that says you have to drink such and such amount of alcohol to be an alcoholic. No. The thing is, if you think you have a problem... You probably do because social drinkers, whatever that means, they don't spend half a second thinking about alcohol. They can take it or leave it. No, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that, Deborah, because I've I've actually said that in a previous podcast. And that is, just ask yourself this question. Do people that don't have a problem even ask the question? (laughs) I mean. (laughs) No, of course. Yeah, of course not. No, they don't. Why would you ask yourself that question? Yeah, they're the ones who leave the, you know, have the ice cubes melting that good scotch or whatever the hell it is, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, they don't think, spend half a second thinking about alcohol. And that's my sister. She's my measuring stick. (laughs) You know. And there's times I'll say, would you finish that damn drink? What is wrong with you? Then I think, oh, stop. It's called alcohol abuse. Yeah, it is. It really is. You know, and there was, just one more thing. You know, there was an old timer when I came in. She would get home from work get the bottle and drink right from the bottle. She said, I would have used the glass, but I didn't have the time. And I thought, I relate to that. You know, anybody, I would have used the glass, but I never forgot her. Yeah, I would have used the glass, but I didn't have the time. Or you're in a restaurant and you, you know, you kind of, being cops, we always notice who's around us, right? And, And I would see, you know, a couple next to us drinking beer or a glass of wine and you know the the couple would drink maybe half the glass or leave a little bit and then they would get up and they would leave and i and it just would bother me i'd be like can you believe that guy over there just that guy didn't finish that glass of wine are you who who does that well i actually i I think the proper question is who who thinks about stuff like that (laughs) yeah I, i still think that yeah i do and then i laugh at myself you know nothing was funny coming into recovery but now i can laugh about it like why are you Why are you looking at that man's glass? You know he didn't want to finish it. It's okay. You, you know we're all we're all going to be okay. The man didn't finish his drink. You know, <laughs> but but we so think that way. Know. We think that way. You know, we do. We do, and that's why you, we we don't you know graduate from this, and that's fine. I don't care. I'm good. Yeah. If, if I never take another drink, I'm good. It's fine. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for joining us today, and what a pleasure. And again, you know, check out Deborah's book, Center of Mass, on Amazon, and and look forward to the audio version, because I know a lot of you guys, you folks out there, don't read books anymore. There's a lot of people that do that. And, well, that's okay, because now you are going to be able to listen to the book, and that's that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, as always, I like to say, we don't represent any group. So, we have been talking about AA quite a bit here, but as we mentioned, uh, get help wherever you can. If it works for you, by God, just keep doing it, because if it works, it works. Then keep working it. So, we don't represent represent anyone other than ourselves, and our only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what we've done, because it has helped us, and maybe it will help you too. So, if we've said anything that does not apply to you, or you don't agree with, then just discard it. But try to take something that we're talking about that you can use for yourself and then use that to help others as well. Uh, That's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way, and we help impart our knowledge to help others. And so with that, please visit our Facebook page, Recovery is Possible, and our website, which is VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com. Let me know how I'm doing. Let me know know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing or someone that you'd like me to talk to because I'd love to hear from you. So Take care and we'll see you next time.